0: Hi, I'm Callie Miller. Growing up in an alcoholic home requires us to tell lies to ourselves, to others. We don't want to believe what is happening and then we are asked not to tell anyone what's happening and so we stay silent, terrified, complicit in lies, lies that are not our own. And we'll do anything just to try to survive. I have learned over the years that these lies can become toxic that these secrets can literally make us sick that what we never look at can never be healed and that sharing our secrets telling our stories saying out loud what has happened to us is one of the most profound ways for us to begin to heal especially if we do it in a community that's why i created this podcast this space so we can have a safe place to share our stories to confess our secrets so they no longer own us, so they no longer have power over us. You are not alone, and this is the Change of Air Podcast. In today's episode, I want to talk about some mind-body practices that have been instrumental in my healing and that I use very regularly on and off and some were instrumental when i was really first starting to deal with everything and you know going to therapy twice a week and really trying to understand what was going on with me which i talked about in earlier episodes and some modalities i you know they were useful at the time got me through moments of extreme stress and anxiety and i don't use them as often but they were instrumental for me so i want to kind of go through these together And I suspect in future episodes, we will spend entire episodes talking to experts about each one. But I think of these first, this kind of first set of episodes as a sort of toolkit. I wanted to share my story and help others understand they are not alone. And I also want to give you some practical tools that were very useful for me so that by the end of these first like five episodes, you, if you listen to nothing else, you've at least got this sort of. Toolkit to work with to know that you're not alone. In previous episodes, we've gone through, you know, sort of every kind of meeting you can go to and all of the support for specifically children of alcoholics. But what I find challenging, and you'll know this if you listen to all the previous episodes, what I have always found challenging about the traditional AA for alcoholics or the Al Anon for us. Is that it didn't really blend Eastern and Western. And you've talked, you've heard me talk about this before. I really feel that what is missing in general from this kind of healing, from any kind of codependency healing, from any real understanding of trauma and how to heal from trauma, short of a few books, there, there hasn't been much of a merging, like making it really publicly available and totally acceptable to go to therapy and do some tapping and do some breath work and do some yoga and also see a doctor. Like this kind of blending of both I feel has always been missing. And in my own healing, I recognized that I needed both, that it wasn't possible doing all one way or the other way. And that the blending was the magic for me. So I started Change of Air because of that, because I just felt there was a vacuum. We weren't talking to other people. We weren't hearing other people's stories. No one was talking about this. It was shameful. So I wanted to remove the shame, but I also wanted to just like jump up and down and say, these things have been really effective for me. And I don't know why they live in this realm of like woo-woo or hippie. They don't kind of make their way into a lot of like traditional therapy. I think that's changing, but I wanted to share these with you so that you've got like a little roadmap of tools, a little toolkit, if you will, of things that you can try. Maybe you've tried all of these before, maybe you've tried some of them, Um, but I thought today would be great to just give you like a quick overview of each that has been foundational for me and a little bit of history and why these modalities have become so effective in healing. So the first one we're going to talk about is something that you've all heard of, it's Yoga. I first came to yoga many, many, many years ago when I lived in San Diego and I did Ashtanga yoga. And if you're familiar with any kinds of yoga, Ashtanga yoga is the most rigorous (laughs) and it's sequential. You do the same series of poses over and over and over again. That's, that's it. Like the series of poses, you, you can move through a couple series, three, if I remember correctly, but you do the same set of poses in the same order. Every time you practice, whether you go to a studio or you have your own practice, and at that time in my life, not yet fully embracing being an adult child of an alcoholic, not yet fully kind of understanding any of this, that rigor and discipline and structure and control was really necessary for me. I was not understanding all the emotions inside my body. I was angry, didn't know why. And it would have been easy in a different kind of yoga that's vinyasa, that's flowy, that changes every time. It would have been very easy for me to show up on my mat and have a crappy experience and blame the teacher. Um, Well, this is not my style, or she taught it in a different way, or whatever excuse I would have come up with to just not be present. And for whatever reason, Ashtanga, is the same every single day. There was no variation. And so it was a vital part of that first starting to look at myself because nothing was different about the practice. The only thing different every day was me. I cannot think of a better mirror to hold up to myself than showing up every day on a yoga mat, doing the exact same poses, And whatever came up for me, whatever frustrations, whatever anger, sadness, whatever discomfort in my body, I could not blame it on anyone else. It wasn't because she did the poses that were too hard for me, or this wasn't interesting, or I can't do X, Y, Z pose, so no wonder I had a bad time. It was always the same. And so it was so clear when I was not the same. I could so clearly see when something was going on with me. Because the movements were the same, the poses were the same. So that was my first entry into yoga and I practiced Ashtanga yoga for many years, religiously, daily, and it was a vital way for me early on to connect to my body. Again, this is before I really understood all that was going on with me, before I had really internalized and begun to understand that I was an adult child of an alcoholic and or two alcoholics really and the effects that that would ultimately have on every part of my life I didn't quite know but I did know that this consistent practice of moving my body in a very orderly structured way felt good and felt necessary even when it was very uncomfortable even when I didn't like how I felt during the practice I could tell that some part of this was useful and helpful to me so I continued doing it for many years And then life got busy and I started traveling a lot for work and I stopped altogether entirely. I completely stopped my yoga practice, started going to the gym, working out, moving my body, but not in that kind of hold up a mirror to what's going on with me sort of way. And I don't think I even noticed how disconnected I had become from yoga until I started working with a yoga company and working with incredible yoga teachers from all over the world not too long ago, maybe 10 years ago. And I realized, ah, here's this practice that was so important to me and foundational at a certain part of my life that I just gave up entirely. So I started practicing yoga again But I was fascinated to not do Ashtanga. I definitely didn't want to do Ashtanga. And to find that vinyasa could be flowy and playful and joyful and hard or easy, or we could do yoga nidra, or we could do a little yin, that it need not be intense, or it need not be too simple. Like just that there was was such a variety. And there were so many different ways that I could tap into my body and into what was going on with me without it needing to be this like extremely rigorous structure. So I played a lot more with yoga during that period of time. But I always had a resistance, right? Because this is now 10 years ago. I'm learning a lot more about myself. I realized that I have a lot of work to do around growing up with two alcoholic parents. And there was a lot of resistance. I enjoyed yoga, but I viewed yoga like a workout. I didn't get into the deeper side of things, and I found myself mostly leaning towards vinyasa flow or things that felt more workouty, less let to deal with what's actually going on emotionally. And I thought that was very interesting. Here I am surrounded by the world's best yoga teachers. This is what I do now for a living. What an incredible dream to work with incredible yoga teachers. And I had incredible resistance to doing anything longer than 45 minutes, the thought of a 90 minute practice seemed terrifying to me. And I didn't even notice it at the time. I didn't know like, oh, I'm terrified of yoga. (laughs) I should examine that. Didn't know that. I just knew that it was a little odd that I had access to the best yoga in the world. And I chose to partake of it very infrequently. I knew that and I thought, oh, it's just because I work here now. And if all yoga feels like work and I'm constantly thinking about like how this looks on film. So maybe, you know, that's what's happening. It's not me. It's that this is my work. Fast forward a few years, no longer working at that company. And I still didn't want to do yoga. It wasn't work. I didn't want to be in touch with my body. And it wasn't until I read a very powerful book that I know I talk about all the time which is The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. It's a brilliant book. I'm sure we will do future episodes, many future episodes just on that book because it's packed so full of so many powerful realizations about how to heal from trauma, but the title gives it away. The the whole premise of the book is that our bodies store all of our trauma. So no wonder I was not interested in doing yoga anymore because anytime I did it, stuff was happening within me and I didn't like it. Now, I didn't know it at the time. I wasn't conscious enough to say like, oh, body, you know, our body is stored trauma and therefore yoga is releasing my trauma and this feels bad. So I'm not going to do this. Maybe I should talk to my therapist about it. I didn't understand any of it, but I knew that I was resisting a thing that used to bring me so much joy. So I read this book and Bessel specifically talks about yoga in a whole chapter. And, and why it is so impactful for people with trauma, like how, how the yoga itself and the movement starts to sort of move things and move trauma in your body. So I'm just going to, there, there's two beautiful, I'm going to link to this incredible Kropalu. Kripalu is an amazing organization. Um, they have incredible retreats throughout the year and they had him give a talk, and specifically on yoga and how yoga heals trauma. And so I'm just gonna read for you two sort of a couple answers that he gave, because I think this this explains far better than I could about what's really going on in the body. And it just resonated so strongly with me because it made it so clear to me why I was resisting this practice. So they asked him, how does yoga impact people who have experienced trauma? His answer, when people think about trauma, they generally think of it as a historical event that happened some time ago. But trauma is actually the residue from the past as it settles into your body. It's located inside your own skin. When people are traumatized, they become afraid of their physical sensations. Their breathing becomes shallow. They become uptight and frightened about what they're feeling inside. When you slow down your breathing with yoga, you can increase your heart rate variability and that decreases your stress. Yoga opens you up to feeling every aspect of your body's sensations. It is a gentle, safe way for people to befriend their bodies where the trauma of the past is stored. They then asked him, how important is talk therapy? In treating trauma, if you've been traumatized, you're likely to have a very distorted relationship to your body. My particular belief is that trauma is really a somatic issue, it is in your body. And because of that, yoga has great relevance because it goes directly to sensing and befriending your body. While talking to a therapist and knowing what happened and being able to articulate it is an important part of healing. The most important part is starting to regain ownership of your body and being comfortable in your own skin. No wonder I didn't want to do yoga. (laughs) I was doing all the therapy. I was talking about what I was learning, but I resisted the connection to my body. At some point during all of that, I started running a lot, an enormous amount, heavy, heavy, intense running. So I was connecting with my body, but in a very bossy, masculine pushy I'm in control of my body kind of way almost shoving down all my emotions with my power running of course I resisted yoga so I asked him an additional question what does the evidence show as far as yoga being beneficial for healing trauma and he said our studies show that yoga is equally as beneficial or more beneficial than the best possible medications in alleviating traumatic stress symptoms. In the studies that we did involving neuroimaging of the brain before and after a yoga class, we were able to show that the areas of the brain involving self-awareness get activated by doing yoga. And those are the areas that get locked out by trauma and that we need to access in order to heal the trauma. Incredible. So, It makes complete sense to me um, why I avoided it so long. And so I offer that up to you as I don't, I don't have no idea what your experience with yoga has been. If you've like me practiced it for a long time and then the closer you got to healing, you strangely had no interest in this practice. I know many people who have taken their first yoga class and cried on their yoga mat because it just unlocked a flood of emotions, whatever it is for you. I just want to kind of open this discussion up with yoga, because I think it is, luckily now, 10 years ago, it was less accessible, but I think it's quite accessible now. You can find incredible online yoga classes. Every city has a local yoga studio. It's actively available for all of us, and it may not be something that you find is useful every day, but I encourage you to cultivate a yoga practice and see what you see and see what comes up. It's been a pretty incredible realization for me that that resistance was coming from such a powerful place of not wanting to look at my pain. And what a beautiful thing that just moving our bodies on a yoga mat can unlock that pain. The tricky part and why we cry sometimes on our yoga mats is that in unlocking that pain, we do release it into our bodies and and need to process it, which is why for some yoga can be really intense, but it was powerful enough that I wanted to start there. And I really encourage you to start with a couple days a week, see how you feel, see what comes up for you, see what blocks, see what resistance comes. It may not be as strong as mine was, um, but I think it's really, really worth exploring. And I'm going to share on the blog like an entire, he just has so many incredible quotes and thoughts of why yoga is so effective and how, you know, this connection to our trauma That it's truly like settled into our bodies can be released. So I'll share all of that on the blog. But yoga, try it. The next thing that once I started doing yoga and once I was working with incredible yoga teachers, I was obviously also working with incredible meditation teachers. And meditation, if I had resistance to yoga, (laughs) oh boy, did I have a resistance to meditation. Like sit quietly with my mind and my thoughts. Hell no. Absolutely, unequivocally. No, no, absolutely no. The very thought of it seemed silly to me, woo-woo. Again, this was a, a a decade ago. Mindfulness Now and meditation, there are so many incredible apps, such access to great teachers and a lot of teachers who make meditation really accessible and straightforward instead of sitting 60 minutes on a mountain trying to reach enlightenment, right? Like how can meditation be part of everyday life? I feel like we've, we have so many tools now that it's much more accessible, but for anyone who has experienced trauma, sitting with your own thoughts can be really, really overwhelming. I resisted meditation for a very long time and funny enough, and I tried it, you know, I tried multiple times. I was working with these incredible teachers that people pay thousands of dollars to go on a retreat with this famous person. And I, just didn't, wasn't getting it. And there was a lot of shame attached to not getting it. Like, why can't I sit quietly? What's wrong with me? You know, I must be broken. I can't do this. And funny enough, I was at, in jury duty on a lunch break at jury duty. And one of the jurors was chatting to someone else. I overheard her and she was a meditation teacher. And she said to this person, as I was eavesdropping, he was asking her questions and he said, you know, I just can't clear my mind of the thoughts. Like I can't, like the thoughts just keep coming and I can't, it's very stressful to sort of clear my mind of all thoughts They keep appearing. And she said to him, oh no, no, no. It's not about clearing your mind of the thoughts. You will always have thoughts. Meditation is simply to sit in silence and notice them. Notice a thought, see it go away. Notice the next thought, see it go away. Notice the next thought. See that it's not going away. What is that about? That's the entire practice of meditation. That's how she distilled it down for him in the cafeteria in LA at jury duty. <laughs> and it clicked for me. And I thought, oh, I don't need to achieve enlightenment. I don't need to clear my brain of everything that's going on. I need only sit and notice my brain. From that day forward, I started practicing meditation every day. And as powerful as yoga has been, and as powerful as some of the other tools that I'm going to share with you, but you have also been, meditation for me has been the most transformative of all the mind-body practices that have been part of my healing. Because when, for me, it could be different for everyone, but when I sat every day, and I started with 10 minutes, 10, that's it. Um, even now, when I do a really long meditation, it's 15, but it's mostly 10 or 11 minutes every day, that's it when i sat with my thoughts every day day after day after day month after month year after year you notice very quickly what things you keep thinking about what things just keep appearing all the time and after weeks and months of the same thoughts appearing you get so tired of thinking those thoughts that you you're very interested in doing something about it <laughs> so that you're no longer having those thoughts i notice if I don't meditate in the morning, if I don't make that time for myself, if I don't check in with myself, I'm jumbled throughout the rest of the day. I'm impatient. I'm not as kind as I could be. I don't show up the way I wish that I would. I don't show up as my best self when I don't take a pause in the morning. And and so much of it is taking the pause, is giving myself something, right? It's taking care of myself in whatever form. For you, that could be yoga. For you, that could be running. For you, that could be journaling, which we'll get to in a moment. For me, part of it came comes from taking time for myself every morning consistently, holding myself accountable to myself, giving myself space, honoring myself, kind of honoring the boundary I set for myself, keeping the deal I made with myself so I respect myself, right? So part of it is that. But specifically for me, meditation, again, 10 or 11 minutes Sometimes I pull cards, sometimes I just sit. Sometimes I light candles and get out stones and I'm totally like lean all the way into my most hippie self. And other times if I'm traveling for work, it's really simple, it's just me seated. I don't need a candle, I don't need the right stone, I don't need the perfect cards. I just need to be with myself and see where I'm at. That simple practice has allowed me to slow down enough in my day so that when we as adult children of alcoholics, no matter how quote unquote healed we are, we can t- still be triggered by a look, by a tone from a coworker, an interaction with anyone throughout our day can kick up weird stuff. And I love the, the sort of quote by Victoria Frankel, Victor, Victor Frankel, in between stimulus and response, like that that sort of continuum of that you can be stimulated, you can be triggered, and you can respond. And like in the space in between, we have a choice of how to react. And I notice when I meditate, my stimulus response, my acting on the thing that triggers me, it buys me more time. Instead of responding right away, instead of assuming that's about me, instead of getting upset, meditation every morning allows my response time to be delayed just enough that I can sometimes catch myself and think, okay, Kelly. this is not about you. This thing that's upsetting you is upsetting you because of this. Maybe take a beat, maybe go for a walk. There's just enough room for me to notice that and not react intensely when I meditate every day. And if I don't meditate in the morning, my response times get a little dicey. I could get a little spicy by the afternoon <laughs> if I haven't had that time. Because that time then gives creates enough expansion in me and in my day that I just I'm able to catch myself in negative thought patterns and in cycles, behaviors that I'm trying to correct, responses that I'm trying to not have, you know, to sort of really pause and understand where something's coming from before I respond. And so that stimulus response, like the space in between that for me, has come entirely from meditation. I don't know what your practice is. If you have meditated, if you had the exact same experience I had, which initially was just deeply painful, really awful, couldn't clear my mind, definitely didn't reach enlightenment, didn't feel this was clearly for me, and maybe even something was like I was broken because it just didn't work for me. As you might expect, Bessel van der Kolk, also who wrote the book Body Keeps a Score, has a lot to say about mindfulness um, and how observing our minds can be really useful. So I encourage you to seek out really great meditation teachers. We have tons online, lots of great apps. If you just want to like set a timer, I'll share a lot of these on the blog so that you have access to every kind of tool. But I encourage you to creep your way in, start with two minutes, start with five and use that tool that I learned by, you know, completely listening to someone else's conversation that it is not about clearing your mind of thoughts, but it is simply being present to notice them as they come and go, and as they come and go, it's not your job to push them out, it's just your job to observe them. And for me, observing the same thoughts over and over and over again, led me to a place where I wanted to change my behaviors because I didn't want to have those thoughts anymore. I wanted to think about something else. So that's meditation. An extension of meditation that has been really powerful for me in the past few years is something called breathwork. My breathwork coach, Gwen Dittmar, is incredible and taught breathwork to me at a time where I was making huge transitions. I was in a pivotal moment. I had started really realizing a lot about being a child of an alcoholic. I was going through a divorce that, was, that cracked me open entirely. It cracked open all the worthiness why is this happening to me? I knew I was flawed. I knew I was broken. No one loves me. All the things that I learned growing up with my parents, which of course makes complete sense that I engaged, I I got into the relationship I got into. I was looking for, you know, all the things I didn't get from my parents, which I didn't understand at the time. And I was having my regular meditation practice and I was doing yoga regularly, but I was Not able, I just could feel I needed to access more. And I don't know how else to explain it. I was going to therapy, um, you know, kind of all the things you need to start healing, but I couldn't kind of access something. And I couldn't even tell you what I couldn't access. And I know that sounds really woo-woo, but I I couldn't, I couldn't. And Gwen was really helpful in walking me through what meditate what breath work is and how it's different from meditation. What I think is so important is Breath work, you breathe much faster. So if you think of meditation as slow breathing, there's lots of different kinds of meditation that, but by and large, you're breathing normally. It's pretty mellow in that way. Breath work, on the other hand, is intense breathing. And there's lots of different kinds. There's box breathing. There's holding your breath for a certain amount and then coming down and over, you know, we'll have her on this podcast and many other teachers um, for meditation and yoga, so you can kind of learn all of the different techniques. But what was most profound to me with breath work is it is at a much higher energetic level. You are breathing rhythmically and intensely for a period of time. More intensely, I would even say, than yoga, unless you're doing a really brisk vinyasa. And Gwen talks a lot. We We did a class together on Mind Body Green. She has an amazing. Cla- breathwork class on Mind Body Green that I'll link to. And you guys should absolutely check out if you're interested in breathwork. The way she explains it, I think is so important, which is people need to be met energetically where they're at. And meditation is pretty low energy, right? You're seated and you're breathing normally. Breathwork, you're breathing really energetically. You're breathing rapidly for a period of time. And the way she explains it is like that meets you a like most of us in our everyday lives are not hanging out at a, like a level two meditation. We are got a hundred things going on. We're late for work. We need to get this project done. We have kids. We're dealing with so many things in a given day that meditation energetically feels like, you know, our day feels like a nine and meditation feels like a two. But that breath work being so energetic meets you at your energy level. And through breathwork, through meeting your energy with this practice at that level, kind of like when you're really amped, going for a run can kind of feel really good because you're energetically, you know, meeting yourself at the same space to bring yourself down. Breathwork works similarly. Um, so that by the time you're done with the breath breathwork practice, you might be at a two, but you start at the energy you're at. It kind of meets you where you are, which has been extremely powerful for me. And I know that it has been extremely powerful for people who've experienced trauma. So Bessel van der Kolk, as I mentioned, um, talked a lot. Of, has talked a lot about meditation and the practices of mindfulness and breath work. And that for those of us who've experienced trauma, mindfulness can, can almost feel physically intolerable, as I talked about with meditation. Like the sensations as your mind tries to focus can be overwhelming and you can get really agitated. I know people talk about trying meditation and they get physically really stressed out because it it's so discordant with our energy to sort of sit and be quiet. So breathwork is this beautiful practice that's not quite as movement-based as yoga, but it's not as mellow as meditation that kind of allows you to breathe and connect with your energy at the pace that you are currently at, at the, the rate your heart is racing at, at the rate your, your thoughts are racing, and slowly get you down. That, for a period or two of two or three years for me, made all the difference. That very practice and the realizations I had after breathwork practices are, are what led me to start Change of Air. I was able to access myself and my trauma and my healing as a result in a way that I had not been able to do through yoga or meditation, or even talk therapy. It was kind of the combination of all those things. It's never one thing, it's, it's all of them together. It's like a perfect little kind of puzzle. Um, all the little tools in my kit that I needed to wield at different times. Breathwork for me kind of allowed me to access myself at a deeper level. It is very common for people who have a breathwork session to have their hands clenched really tight. Very, very tight cramp up because there's so much energy that you're so scared to let go of. It is also very common to cry. That happened with me frequently. It is an incredible practice. You can access great things online. Again, I'll link the Mind Body Green class with Gwen. Um, But you can also book private sessions with people or do simple breathing exercises once you learn them to begin to make this part of your practice regularly. I don't practice breath work regularly because I personally have such big experiences when I go through breath work that I'd like to be with someone else in the room just so I can like completely let go and feel safe. But there are many many times where I notice myself throughout a day where I'm getting very active and very intense or over overreactive when I'm acting in a way that I know is way over the top for the situation at hand, I have been able to pause and say, okay, my energy's way up here. This is not a time for a little meditation. I need to do some active breathing right now to be at the level I'm at so that I can come down a notch or two so that I can, again, between stimulus and response, not not respond in a way I know I shouldn't or that is like a way out of proportion to the situation at hand. Breathwork has been invaluable in those situations. And there are some really easy ones that I'll link to that are not long. It's You can do seven minutes. It need not be a, an hour long situation. So that's breathwork. A few other tools that I want to just make sure that you have in your toolbox. Tapping. I don't know if you've done tapping. I don't know if you know what tapping is. Sometimes it's called EFT, Emotional Freedom Technique. But it's essentially an organized way that you take your fingers and you tap on your forehead, you tap certain parts of your body and your face, kind of from the shoulders up, in an organized way. And you say certain things to yourself. And I'm going to walk through what it is, just so you have like the, the essence of it. And then I'll link to lots of lots of tools for you. But essentially, trauma affects us in our bodies. It's obviously stored in our bodies. But sometimes I notice if, for example, I haven't done my meditation and I'm not in a place where I can do breath work, like I'm in public um, and I can't lay down and breathe in the middle of a busy area. I sometimes need a tool to help me calm down in the moment right away and talk to myself about what's actually true versus what is coming up for me in the moment. So again, Bessel, I'll use his quote um, because he also talks about EFT in his book. He is talking about a patient and he says, I taught her to use her fingers to tap the sequence of acupressure points on various parts of her body, a practice that is often taught under the name of emotional freedom technique, which has been shown to help patients stay within the window of tolerance and often has positive effects on PTSD symptoms. In order to change, people need to become aware of the sensations and the way that their bodies interact with the world around them. Physical self awareness is the first step in releasing the tyranny of the past. Practicing tapping calms down the sympathetic nervous system so that you are less likely to be thrown into fight or flight. Learning to observe and tolerate your physical reactions is a prerequisite. For safely revisiting the past. Isn't that fascinating? That that it's only in that sort of removing our fight or flight, calming down, that we're sort of able to safely go to the places of trauma and sort of sit with those experiences and process them. So, EFT, I'm gonna walk you through what it is and then I'll give you a, a little story of how I recently used it. There are six parts to it, as I have been taught so I'm going to walk you through the six parts. One, it's a space of safety as we tap in a step-by-step manner to face our fears in the past. Two, it's mindful awareness of the physical sensations in our body. Three, it's verbalizing statements of love and acceptance, because as you tap, you actually say things to yourself, which is pretty powerful. Like just the tapping alone is, is sort of interesting, but it's the tapping and the statements that you say to yourself when you're tapping that that sort of combine to be really powerful. Four, with the use of fingertips, you tap specific points on your body and that physical action in the the exact spots release stored and unresolved disruptive energies in your body. Five, sorry, I'm tapping the microphone. Tapping sends a calming signal to your amygdala that governs your fight and flight response before you engage in cognitive processing. So it sort of like calms you down so that you can actually take in the phrases that you are verbalizing to yourself. And then six, breathing to center yourself in the present helps you access and kind of release trauma. So I'm going to link you to several great videos that sort of walk you through two taps on your forehead, then two taps on your cheek, then two taps on your chin. Um, it's a very specific order. Once you learn it, you'll kind of know it and you'll be able to access it all the time. I have even been known to not know the order or remember the order. in the very act of tapping on myself in moments of extreme stress Just tapping my forehead and then my chest and then my cheeks and knowing like I'm kind of getting it right has been extremely helpful in moments of high, high stress. So I'll give you an example. Not too long ago, I had to go to the ER. Um, I had a really deep cut in my arm because the sliding door in my office, I shut it too hard and it's really old and the entire pane of glass sheared off and sliced through my arm my upper arm. I faint when I give blood. So this was a really, really overwhelming, like I faint when there's blood in movies. Um, We'll have to do a whole episode on fainting and trauma because it's fascinating what I've learned. But the very idea of a lot of blood coming out of my arm, like I'm not a nurse for a reason. Very stressful to me. Um, Have to go to the ER. I'm bleeding. The wound is deep. I'm just trying so hard not to faint. I get to the ER and the ER is packed. It is so full of people. Uh, It's clear that I'm going to be sitting there for hours and I'm there with people who are sick and coughing and I have this huge open wound and it's bleeding and I'm like dizzy and trying so hard not to faint. And I can see that it's going to take a really long time. Then they come and look at me and they tell me that all the beds are full in the back and that they're probably, you know, like wait an hour, but they're probably just going to have to stitch me up in the hallway. I mean, probably not an ideal experience for anybody, but for me, that's like, it pushes every conceivable button. Like I was on a level 10, like I couldn't access breath work. I couldn't certainly, there was no meditating. I was like on a, on a scale of one to 10, I was a 20. I was energetically absolutely freaking out. My heart was racing. I was really scared and I was also trying not to faint. And I noticed because I've been a fainter my whole life at the sight of blood, <laughs> I do know that a cold compress and laying down can really help. But I'm in a hospital. The waiting room didn't feel super clean, but it was really cold outside. I remember it being kind of cold and windy. And so I kept going outside. I just kept saying, okay, understood. I'm still here. Let me know when you can see me to stitch me up in the hallway. But I kept going outside. And I would sit down outside in this cool air. And the only thing I could think to do, the only tool that like in all that intensity that like rang true for me was tapping. I knew that I had to like get back into my body to like calm myself down. I was feeling like just as intense as when my parents would have just a raging fight or my alcoholic stepfather would be throwing things in the house. Like I was at that level. And certainly cutting your arm and going to the ER for anyone is stressful. Even cutting your arm and going to the ER for someone who doesn't like blood and faints is stressful. But that sort of like not being able to be seen, not being, not mattering, like all of that combined just felt like all of my life's traumas were like right there pressing on me. And I was just getting more and more anxious. And so I found tapping I, to this day, I feel like this is the only thing that got me through. I kept going outside and I would sit down and I would just tap again, totally in the wrong order, not even doing it right. Tapping my forehead, tapping my chest, tapping my shoulders, tapping my cheeks. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to get through this again. It's not even the right language. The language is like, there's a very specific structure of like, even though this is happening, I know that this is true instead right, that's kind of the language of it, to reinforce that, like, even though I'm feeling this, this is ultimately true. I didn't even use that language. I was just tapping to bring myself back to my body, back to the moment, and letting myself know, like, you're here, you're in this body, we need not be on plane 11 of anxiety and stress. We are here, you are going to get through this, and the physical tapping just brought me, like the sensation of touching myself brought me back to myself enough that I could be calm enough to go back in there and face it. Now I had to do this six times over three hours. Like it wasn't, <laughs> it kept getting more and more stressful, um, but that, that was the key. And that to me demonstrated more than any other time I've used tapping. That was the demonstration to me of how powerful that technique can be in moments of high, high stress when you're in a place where you can't kind of lay down and do breath work or yoga. So I share that with you because that might be the tool that for you is a game changer. And I feel like you should know about it. The last thing I wanna talk about is journaling. And it may seem silly that, oh, journaling, is not a healing technique or mind body practice. And I, having been a lit major and a writer in various capacities throughout my entire career, I always looked at journaling as something that was a little silly, (laughs) to be, if I'm totally honest. You know, I worked for literary agents when I was in college, and I think I secretly always, I mean, I know that I've always wanted to write a book. That's always been a thing I wanted. I worked with a lot of very famous authors and was deeply intimidated by them. To this day, the only people that really intimidate me are famous writers and athletes. I was very familiar with writing, and I love writing. I, I think I'm a good writer. But I never thought of writing as a healing, like even the artist way, Julia Cameron, like this idea of writing and journaling, like writing your pages and creativity, like I just, I could see that, but always around writing fiction or writing a book. So the idea of journaling, to me, I dismissed for many, many years of my own healing. I dismissed it entirely as some sort of like diary, like we're adults. We don't need to keep a diary. We kept diaries when we were teens. I could not have been more wrong journaling in the past few years has been really transformational for me i knew when i was very young i kept diaries and i knew that in writing writing was always how i figured out how i felt it wasn't until i wrote it down that i could then just have like enough distance to say ah so that's how i feel about that thing whether it was a work thing or a relationship thing. Or something much bigger and foundational. I knew that, but kind of like my yoga practice from many years ago, I had just relegated that to the past. And for many years, just thought journaling was silly, or you know, like like an adult sticker book or something. Like it just seemed silly to me. Um, But I have been researching it a lot because I finally a a therapist of mine said, you know, you need to journal. You need to write down your thoughts, which I thought was really silly. Um, But I did it, and I started doing it every day. And now I do it. After every meditation. So it's almost like my meditation practice is there to observe the thoughts, not to shove them away, but just to be like, huh, that's interesting. Hmm, okay, I'm thinking about that still. That's annoying, duly noted. Right after my meditation practice, I then journal. I journal out anything that came up that I want to resolve or think through. So while I may only meditate for 10 minutes, my morning routine is like 30 or 40 because I spend a good amount of time now journaling. And those two together have been extremely powerful for me. Um, So I want to read you just this little, James Pennebaker did this sort of landmark research about journaling and how journaling can be extremely powerful for anyone who's experienced trauma and sort of getting that out of your body. Um, he, He talks about it as expressive writing, that journaling is expressive writing. And he says that writing for 15 to 20 minutes at a time over several days, whether it's about a past traumatic event, whether it's that specific, or even if it's just secret concerns, which is basically what I feel like always comes up for me in meditation, that writing for 15, 20 minutes at a time over, you know, day after day shows measurable improvements in immune system function. Fascinating. Other studies that he did around short-term writing showed that like wounds on skin healed faster if people were writing about their concerns about it. Fascinating. Um, so what he, what he sort of got to in all of his research is that suppressing our emotions, particularly if we've experienced trauma and putting them down, pushing them down, which certainly as an adult child of an alcoholic, I mean, we spent, spent our childhoods pretending we didn't have feelings and needs, right? We shoved them all down just to kind of survive that without journaling, without, we need to get them out essentially. And that journaling allows us to release those thoughts in the same way that yoga sort of begins to move it in your body. Journaling begins to move it as well, but in a different way. So uh, I have really found that journaling has been not only grounding, like not, not only just a good, like I'm meditating and I'm journaling and I'm taking care of myself. And that's important for a thousand reasons for adult children of alcoholics the actual act of journaling for me specifically after meditation has been transformative. And that often life gets busy. So I'll do just my meditation and not my journaling. And I notice a difference. I notice a difference when immediately after meditation, I don't take the time to process what has come up for me. I know lots of people have different ways they journal, they journal, which is sort of like bullet journaling, which can be like, these are the things I did today. Or um, can feel even more like a to do list, and they're very beautiful. It's almost more like a planner. Mine are really free form. And as someone who always wanted to be a writer and worked with really famous writers, for a long time I would buy beautiful journals and be terrified to write in them because I needed every word in them to be like, you know, Tolstoy, like just beautiful, perfect fiction or like beautiful sentences. And it took me a long time to allow my journaling to be really raggedy, not pretty, doesn't need to even make sense necessarily, certainly, like not perfect handwriting, just getting out whatever has come up. And to me, that combination of meditation and journaling has allowed me to identify some pretty intense things from my childhood, or even something that triggered me three days earlier. I finally figure out why it triggered me three days later. In meditation and maybe not even in the meditation but in the journaling after so for me those those are the tools that i have found most helpful yoga meditation breath work tapping and journaling that no matter where you are in your healing journey no matter if you just started listening to this podcast because you just learned that you're an adult child of an alcoholic or if you have been on this healing journey for decades, I do again, just as I said at the beginning of this episode, I do feel that so many times the tools that are most obviously available to us, Aladon, Codependence No More, ACA, don't necessarily talk about these things. And if you discover only these things, only yoga, or only journaling, or only EFT, only meditation, they often don't talk about all the other things like codependency and setting boundaries and all the things that we absolutely need to know as adult children and alcoholics. Like the blending of these tools together to me is the most powerful. And it's the only way I am here talking to you because they all worked for me in some capacity. And again, I don't use them all every day necessarily. I haven't used tapping since I went to that ER visit. Um, And my, you know, that was a while ago and my, my scar is healing nicely because I got through it, because I had access to that tool. These are different tools to wield at different times. And you may love one that I don't. You may find that yoga is amazing, but you still totally can't stand meditation. I share these with you because I have found them to be transformative. And I started Change of Air because I didn't want anyone else to have to spend as long as I have spent decades and decades and decades um, trying to figure it all out. So I hope these tools are helpful for you. I would love to know which ones you've tried, which ones work for you, which ones you still struggle with. And I'd love to know new ones that are working for you. I've just started doing really interesting therapy with my therapist, it's called Parts Therapy. I'm Gonna do a whole episode on that. I think that's really the key, is that this is a continuum. We are never fully healed. We never arrive at the end of healing. There's always new tools that can help us access yet more and for me it's always a goal to just lengthen the amount of time between when something triggers me and when I re- respond to that trigger and the, the more tools we have to lengthen that to observe our thoughts to stay calm to understand where it's really coming from versus where it seems like it's coming from like that's changed how I interact at work how I interact in all of my relationships, how I interact with my family, who still hasn't figured all this out, though they lived with the same alcoholic parents, or in that, you know, in many cases, it was their brother, or their sister, these have been vital. So I hope you try them. I would love to know what works for you, and any new tools that are working for you that we haven't yet talked about. Thank you. Thank you. More very soon.